0: Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. We got a great one for you today. So look, you guys have been asking for debates. We're going to deliver. We did Emily last week on the culture war. This week we will be debating a libertarian presidential candidate, Mike Dermott. Is his name. Yes. Dermott.
1: Dermott. And uh, yes, the in in honor of his libertarian ideology, the free market asked us for more deba- debates. So we're just finding where the supply and the demand curve of the desire for more debates meets. We are trying to reach you there, and that's why we are having Mike on today.
0: Indeed. Uh, so look, you're not going to want to miss this. For people who are just watching this video on YouTube, the teaser clip, do yourself a favor. Link is in the video description box below. Uh, go to Substack. If you pay $5 a month, you get the video of every interview and every debate, and you get it a day early, usually on Fridays. Uh, everybody else can uh, sign up on Substack for free and get uh, the all the interviews and debates a day later, usually that's on Saturday. But remember, guys, we don't take any corporate money, any advertiser money. We've never had a conversation with an advertiser for this show. So it's all funded through the you know, $5 donations per month at a time. So please consider supporting. And like I said, you're not going to want to miss this. It's going to be fun. We're having fun with these debates now. And it should be contentious and interesting. And it'll be substantive as well. But you're not going to want to miss it. Okay. Yeah. So having said that, um, there's a study that you covered on Breaking Points.
1: Actually, technically counterpoint. It was on counterpoint. So Ryan and Sagar, both of the men, are out of town this week. So uh, Emily's been filling in for Sagar. I've been filling in for Ryan. So we had this conversation, Emily and I, on um, counterpoints about this study that I wanted to get your take on, Kyle. About how
0: Spicy topic. Let's just say that up front. Spicy topic. It's about men and women, sensitivity. Sensitivity,
1: crying, yeah. all kinds of things. It, all right. Modern men just as likely as women to show their sensitive side, survey reveals. Apparently this Can we pause for a second?
0: Yeah. First of all, do you buy that? Just the 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 top line. Are men just as likely as women to show their sensitive side? No. <laughs> you don't think so? I
1: don't think so. Cause maybe if you were just talking about young men, maybe mm-hmm. it'd be closer. Um when you include middle but age, This older. is not just confined to young men. This is all generations. Gotcha. So, all right,
0: keep going. I'm yeah. sorry to okay. interrupt. I just want to know that.
1: That's all right. Um, so here's, here's what they say. It turns out boys really do cry. Modern men are now just as likely as women to openly display a sensitive side. The poll of 2,000 adults finds 71% of men confess to being in touch with how they feel compared to 82% of women. Across all respondents who consider themselves to be sensitive, 41% outwardly show this side of their personality often or always. A third think being in tune with how they feel is the sign of a good leader. And this was interesting to me as well. 37% of men consider being called sensitive a compliment. Only 23% of women feel the same way. So women are more likely to feel like if you're saying they're sensitive, that that's an insult. Men are more likely to say, okay, this can is. I, a can
0: I jump in now? Yeah. Okay, so, and how is it? There, there's more too, right?
1: Yeah, so okay. there, there were numbers you, about, yeah, go ahead.
0: Before you get to that stuff, I just wanted to break this down a little mm. bit. So on the sensitive thing, it is gendered. And I think people are interpreting that correctly. If a man is called sensitive, it's usually meant like, he's sensitive he's like he's so sensitive yeah which is like oh it's a good thing nice yeah but if a woman's called sensitive it's like she's really sensitive
1: yeah it's like, like it's a negative touchy and you know what i mean overly emotional whatever. so they interpreted yes, it uh
0: in a gendered way but i think they were correct to interpret it in that gendered way yes it is a compliment in one a, instance and it is a put down in another more instance. of a
1: pejorative when okay. applied to women I now
0: the 71 percent of men are in touch with how they feel that i don't like that's so vague, I don't even know what it means, right? Like, if you tell me, am I in touch with how I feel? It's like, yeah, I know how I feel. I feel, whether I feel good, bad, b- mediocre, happy, anything. Like, yeah, I know how I feel. So I'm surprised not 100% of people know how they feel, right? That's just yeah. a weird way of putting it. And 82% of women say the same. Again, not surprising. It should be like 100% of people. I don't really know why they phrased it this way. Right. Um. Then they say 41% show sensitivity often or always. Again, I don't know what that means. So, like, if I'm... In touch with my feelings, but I'm not like being sensitive. That's still me showing what I'm feeling, right? So I'm showing like my sensitivity. Like you could be not sensitive, but if even if you get sensitive, you wear it on your sleeve anyway.
1: You yeah, know what I'm right. So
0: even that's weird. 41% show sense. I-, I guess what they mean is 41% are just like, you know, oh, I don't feel great today, you know, like, <laughs> or I like, you know about this?
1: but. Or, like, displaying a level of vulnerability, I guess, about, like, it's the opposite of that just, like, you know, stoicism that was the sort of classic male trait. It's, like, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to talk about your feelings. It's okay to, you know. We're going to get back to that. Keep going. (laughs) All right. So, this is the part that's really controversial, I think. So, they link to another survey that found that, and this is self-reported, that men cry on average about four times a month. Women, on the other hand, self-report crying about three times a month. So four times a month for men, three times a month for women. That works out for those math geniuses out there. 48 times a year that men are crying and 36 for women. I
0: I don't buy it. You don't don't think that's right? I think this goes back to the whole gendered thing we were just talking about before. Men, like, they're probably over-reporting how much they cry because it might even be viewed as a positive thing, a man crying these days, or they think society would interpret it as like,
1: Oh, he's so sweet. Sensitive, he's so sensitive. yeah. He,
0: sometimes feel, he cries. So I think they're
1: over-reporting it. And do you think women are under-reporting it or accurately reporting it? Because if women are more likely to see being sensitive as an insult, perhaps women are under-reporting. Yeah, they're they're either, like, I don't want to be viewed as some like, unhinged, emotional, crazy person.
0: They're either under-reporting or just telling the truth. Yeah. I think it's one or the other. Yeah, but um, it, now let's, for argument's sake here, let's say the numbers are real, which I definitely doubt on the men's side. That's pathetic. <laughs> no, for real. For real. So look, I'm not anti-crying. You know, I cried when my dad died. Of course I cried. Given his eulogy, I cried. At our wedding, I was crying the entire freaking ceremony. It was kind of sad. Like, it's hard to find a picture of me not being like...
1: <laughs> people, lo- people loved that, though. I understand
0: that people loved it, but yeah. I'm, just, my, I'm illustrating the point. I'm not anti-crying. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if, if the situation is right, and it's the organic thing, right? But... If you're crying four times a month, bruh, I I don't want to be an asshole, but like, go talk to a therapist, psychiatrist, psychologist, take some SSRIs or some anti-anxiety medication like that. That's a lot of crying, man. That's a lot of four times a month. That's every week. (laughs) You're crying
1: every week. Well, one of the things that I um, said with Emily is like, I wonder how are people interpreting crying? because there's a big difference between like full on crying and like welling up a little bit at something that's sweet, you know? I
0: I mean, their definition is probably at least one tear going down your face, right? That's what I would imagine. That's what you think? Like you have, to, in order to cry, the tear, the waterworks to have to go. There be at least
1: one tear yeah. that rolls down the cheek. Yes, or and even ex- if exits the eye area,
0: and even if all four of them are just that one tear type deal, you got to get your shit together. The other
1: thing is, you, you're like they need. They're like clearly unhinged. Like you didn't say unhinged, but they clearly need to like talk to a therapist or get on SSRIs or something. But I, I'm thinking of myself. I consider myself to be a somewhat sensitive and emotional person, and especially I feel like since I've had kids, it's like any commercial that has a little kid in it or whatever, I'm just like, oh, I'm a sucker for it. Probably the overwhelming majority of times that I cry, it's not about anything sad. It's about being like emotional about like, you know, at Ida's graduation. See, that's or
0: interesting cause my expectation was that the men, it would be about not that like that. Is- But it it doesn't specify. It doesn't specify that. So maybe it is like they're watching a movie or something.
1: Yeah. So to me, if, you know, if you're taking all instances of crying, as just like an emotional, you know, uh, reaction. Then dudes are crying four times a month. What's the problem? Like if they're able to allow themselves to have those feelings and like really get be moved by whatever is going on around them, um, whether it's a TV show or like some milestone for their kid or whatever it is. How's that a bad thing? You know, why should they stuff that down and not show their genuine reaction to whatever's going on around them? Okay,
0: so here's my answer, and this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but nonetheless, this is how I feel, okay? I'm a believer in, of course, honesty is super important. You always have to be honest, especially in a relationship, always have to be honest. But I'm also a believer in stoicism. I am. I think you need to... Um, Be able to view yourself objectively enough to know when your ass is being fucking ridiculous.
1: But how is it ridiculous to tear up at like kindergarten graduation? No, it's not.
0: That's again, this all comes back to I'm not interpreting it as that. I'm interpreting it to like, Bob got the promotion and I did. (laughs) not That's how I'm thinking of the men doing it. If what you're describing is true, that is I would I'll grant you it's less ridiculous. Because it's just, you know, if it's like a touching moment that was meant to be a touching moment in a movie or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, okay. You want to tear up. I'm not hating on you. Okay. Right? All right. Well, again, when you're at four times a month, and if a lot of these moments are not stuff like that, it, it just seems to me like you're you're a little unbalanced, and you need to be able to look at yourself more objectively and kick your own self into your ass from time to time and be like, get your shit together, bro. Like, come on. Get it together. like basically i don't want to say man up but i want to say like stiff upper lip
1: so you're interpreting crying as just being i just want to correctly interpret your position here your view of the crying is almost like you know when you're feeling bad for yourself yes you're sad that's, about that's, something that happened to you and yeah, you're I down and you're wrong. crying
0: maybe you're right that it's like you know in a movie i mean whatever. it doesn't
1: specify i think it the just movie crying.
0: would be less uh sad and the crying over what your life situation your thing at work your relationship whatever that's a little more pathetic. That's a little more pathetic. Yeah. you know. But
1: then, I mean, you have to grant that there are certain circumstances in which that would be an emotionally healthy response, even if it was the type of crying that was about like, you know, your dad died and you were really feeling that loss or your child died or like something horrific happens to you. It's a healthy emotional response to feel sad and cry.
0: Yeah, certainly there are contexts where it's The proper response. It's the right thing. That it's the right thing. You know. But if you're again four times a month, it's like, are we really at that benchmark of this is appropriate? Are you just sort of sulking? Is there like self-loathing? You know, like what's what's going on here?
1: So you think it would be? Would you think it was appropriate? And you wouldn't have like questions about or tell this dude to like man up, as you put it, if these expressions of emotion in the form of tears were more about like happiness, joy. You know, seeing something sweet, like, you know, like yesterday, uh, Yegor sent me this image of a woman who adopted a cat that was 20 years old because she didn't want him to spend his last days in right. a shelter. Like, something like that, you know, yeah. could easily in the right context make me tear up. Like, that you feel like that would be fine? Or you feel like that's, keep that shit that together cer- too? No,
0: that's certainly more fine. Look, I'll, I'll say it like this. I'm going to grant you one cry a month. I'm going to grant you one cry a month. Once you start getting over wait, that wait, line. Wait, definition. What do you mean?
1: You're, what's your definition of crying, though, in the context you're thinking. Oh,
0: at least one tear.
1: No, but So the welling over up and fighting it off
0: is fine. That's no big deal.
1: So uh, one tear of sadness or one tear of anything? Um, why do I get to only have one, like, experience of joy and emotion in a month that leads me to tears?
0: Well, I'm, I'm talking about the dudes here. I
1: know, but I'm playing <laughs> the part. But why do they— because, Why should they be held to a different standard than women, too?
0: Because, okay, because there is—there's there's a value— in, I think in the long run, it pays dividends psychologically to sort of get over your own bullshit. You know what I'm saying? I, I feel like that in the long run is a positive thing for you mentally and will make you happier. And it's almost like, like, think of it like that. This. this is how I'm thinking about it, right? Like, imagine a, a a soccer team or a hockey team or whatever basketball team and they have a really good coach that like, really can guide them through life, really can knows what to say and when to say it and how to get through to them and how to get the best out of these players, right? You need to be that for yourself because nobody else is going to do it. So if you're... I don't want people to get dragged down and submerged in their own negative emotions. And at a certain point in time, I feel like with a lot of people nowadays, it's like they actually think that it is... a uh, a liberation type thing to wallow in negative stuff. Yeah. And and I just don't agree with that. I think you're going to be happier if you don't do that, if you actively fight these things off and and pep talk yourself and say, nah, I'm going to get my shit together and I'm going to override this. I'm going to overcome it, whatever it is. But again, the whole conversation here is, is assuming that they're crying for, you right. know, a negative. negative type, reason. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. In, in fairness, like I kind of ar- argued the opposite side of this when I was talking to Emily and I'm just, um you know, making the debate interesting here because some Mm -hmm. of what you say I do agree with. But, um, I mean, I think to you crying at our wedding, which, um, you know, which you sort of hated, you didn't really like showing that level of of emotion.
0: Like like if I did it for three minutes, cool. But the whole time I was like, (laughs)
1: like, but you were the only, you were the only one who felt that way. Yeah, but there's a and, reason and not, I feel it. And not only that, yeah, societal constructs and expectations and toxic masculinity. that's why. I think reasonable but,
0: frameworks is how I describe it. But go ahead. Here's
1: <laughs> the thing: like, it was such a beautiful expression of your love, not just for me, but for our kids, for like all of these people that have come together. And by you allowing yourself to let that emotion out, and making yourself vulnerable in that way, it was quite the opposite of like, you need to get your shit together. It was like, actually this is, it's actually takes some courage to show this level of emotion and vulnerability in front of this large group of people. And you kind of let people in with that. And that was part of what made everybody at the ceremony have a deeper experience of what was going on i totally agree
0: that's a moot point we totally agree but it's not
1: just it's not just that it was fine that you did it 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 was actually like i would say a sort of model of i don't want to say masculinity but just it was it was it was actually actively good positive beautiful moment but let's not pretend like every cry is like that
0: because a lot of times a lot of people cry over some dumb shit right maybe Yeah, absolutely. Come on, you know that's (laughs) true. Yeah, of course. Yeah. All I'm saying is, don't if you're crying for negative reasons, for sad reasons, like don't wallow in your own sadness. And actually, the whole thing of uh, you know just men versus women. No, I actually mean it for both. I was gonna ask. I actually mean it for both. So, do you think that
1: men should be more stoic than women? Then, like, do you think there is a there should be ideally a difference in gender? I would
0: kind of recommend a certain degree of stoicism to everybody. You know. And look, it's the same in a relationship, not to let people too much into our business here, but if I do something you don't like or you do something I don't like. Never happens. Never happens. (laughs) But there's already a default level of trust where I know you didn't do it on purpose. So if I want to, in the moment, be like, what? <laughs> Stop, don't do the... It's like, bitch, shut the fuck up. She didn't mean it. It's not a big deal. Let's move the fuck on here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like that, that is healthier, because a lot of people nowadays would say in a relationship, every single second, every little instinct you have, share it with your partner, and make sure they know everything you're feeling, you know everything you are feeling. It's like, nah, sometimes, some shit is like, I'm gonna go ahead and get the fuck over this because I know I'm being ridiculous well, or vice versa, right? Right,
1: well, and sometimes those things that feel very big in the moment are colored by like, I'm really hungry, I'm really a- tired. You like, absolutely. I'm really irritated with the kids or whatever. People don't realize and that. And it is, can be hard in the moment to separate, like, what is a justified grievance that I'm feeling right now and what is just a, like, at another moment, if I was better fed and better rested, I would just have no issue with it. But I do think that there's a fine line between... Um, what you're describing, which is like, you don't have to tell them every single fucking thing that irritates you. Like, and that's just not, you know, you, you take in good faith that your partner's like acting in a reasonable way. There's a fine line between that and just like suppressing actual, you know, real conflicts of values or tensions or issues that are going to surface again and again that do actually need to be at some point dealt with and you can push them off long enough that they kind of accumulate and it becomes a bigger problem than it would have been if it was dealt with at the but start. then
0: you shouldn't be with that person anyway if you're going to have like conflicts over base level stuff like just values it's like then what are you even doing what are you even doing right
1: Yeah, but I mean, listen, there's always going to be little give and take living together with another human being, no matter who they are, no matter how much you love them. And so I do think that there is a balance between what you're saying, like, let some time pass, see how you feel the next day or whatever, and just never addressing, you know, these little annoyances that can add up to more if you don't deal with them. I mean, my
0: theory is, look, those little annoyances, at least for me. 95% 95% of the time that's a problem with me It's not a problem with you not a problem with somebody else who I might be annoyed by it's like for whatever reason you said I'm hungry I'm tired I'm annoyed I didn't sleep well last night I'm trying to do something else and this shit is getting in the way 95% of the time it's like the person's not actually doing anything wrong it's you in your own mind being a little prima donna bitch and being like <laughs> God, this is annoying me, but it's like, you know what? Take a couple steps away, relax. That you won't even remember this in seven minutes. Like, yeah. just get over it. And I feel like a lot more things fall into that category than people like to admit. Yeah, because people are like, too. oh, my feelings are everything, and whatever I'm feeling right now, I'm gonna feel forever. And it's like, no, you're not. Shut the fuck up, <laughs> stiff upper lip, move on, and that's the end of it, you know?
1: I agree. How does Ron DeSantis feel about all of this? Speaking
0: of meatball Ron, putting Ron, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen. So um, this is a clip that dropped yesterday. He went on Fox News and did an interview, and he's gonna say something here that's so extreme and so insane that even a Fox News host, Martha McCallum, who's pretty conservative in her own respect, is like, excuse me? You believe what now? So take a look.
2: Are you in favor of, of eliminating any agencies? I know conservatives in the past have talked about closing the Department of Education. Would you do that? So we would do education, We would do commerce, we do energy, and we would do IRS. And so if Congress will work with me on doing that, we'll be able to reduce uh, the the size and scope of government. But what I'm also going to do, Martha, is be prepared. If Congress won't go that far, I'm going to use those agencies to push back against woke ideology and against the leftism that we see creeping into all institutions of American life. So, for example, with Department of Education, we reverse... All the transgender sports stuff, women's sports should be protected. We reverse policies trying to inject the curriculum into our schools. That will all be gone. We will make sure we have an accreditation system for higher ed, which is not trying to foment more things like DEI and CRT. So we'll be prepared to do both. Uh, Either way, it'll be a win for conservatives.
0: From my perspective, that is like, not only is he a one trick pony, Mm mm-hmm. But it's actually worse than that. You're somehow like a one-trick pony, but you also made it worse than that because he decided to go super far right on these questions of government agencies, which is not appealing him to anybody. Look, I get that he thinks I need to outflank Trump on the right in order to have a chance in this primary. That's the thinking. Yeah. That's the thinking. But the Trump supporters are not, it's not like really about policy. It's about vibes. So you're not going to get them on your side and you're just making it so that now in a general election against Joe Biden or anybody else for that matter, you're less electable. In fact, the polls are showing that. DeSantis used to be up on every single poll against Joe Biden. Every poll. Now there's somewhere Biden is winning. So like he's shooting himself in the in the dick here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, abolishing the IRS is just like an extremely fringe position. All of these agencies. And And, and explain that for people. Why is that so fringe? Because It's a very important point. I mean, because like the basics of even having a government requires some sort of Tax collection system, and so to just you know willy nilly like let's just get rid of that, let's get rid of this one, let's get rid of this one. That's it's an extreme place to stand. Um, I don't even know if like the libertarian dude that we're about to debate would be like, yeah, let's get rid of all of them. You know, no big deal, um, because he's a more serious thinker ultimately than Ron DeSantis is. But it's also like they know they're not being honest about. It. He knows he would not do any of this That's if he was true. actually yeah. president. That's why he just casually throws it out there like, you know, like it's no big deal because he knows this is a, a conservative far right pipe dream fantasy that he has no intention of actually fulfilling. And then on the political point. I really think it's sort of precious that he thinks that his path to the nomination is going to be to check off some conservative (laughs) far right ideological policy checklist because nothing in politics indicates that that's how any of this is going to work, especially on the Republican side of the aisle. But really, unfortunately, in the Trump era, the central dividing line in our politics as enforced by the media is like, how do you feel about the person of Donald Trump? And that certainly has become the litmus test on the, you know, on the Republican side. But on the Democratic side, too, any sort of reasonable policy debate gets subsumed by, like, did you condemn Trump hard enough for X or Y or Z? And suddenly you can have Nicole Wallace being the leading, quote unquote, liberal commentator because Chris she Christy. says the right things about Donald Trump.
0: Chris, Chris, Chris Christie beloved by Democrats now.
1: <laughs> we We covered this week. Even quote unquote moderates like Chris Christie, who, by the way, in 2016 opposed Trump's border wall and made fun of it as a ridiculous idea. Even he is now on board with the border wall and sounds a lot like Trump on immigration. They all have you know, taken these far right positions, but they still are able to get labeled as like reasonable and moderate by the press because of you know, vis-a-vis where they stand on Donald Trump. So it's just it's ridiculous on a lot of levels. But yeah, DeSantis, his probably best argument previously was I'm more electable than Trump. Trump is the one Republican who wouldn't beat Joe Biden. You know, I heard a bunch of Republican pro DeSantis people making that case. But every time you sign a six week abortion ban or, you know, go to like go to war with trans people or just randomly decide to abolish a bunch of federal agencies or, you know, stand by your support for uh, cutting Social Security and Medicare. Every time you take one of those fringe positions, you undercut your own best argument that I'm the guy who could defeat Joe Biden.
0: But to be fair, even when he makes that argument, which I agree with you is his most potent argument, I've seen him invoke it at times that it makes no sense and awkwardly. So, like, remember when he... he- called himself Ron DeSantis sometimes, and other times Ron DeSantis. And so the media was like, which is it? Like, you seem to sort of change how you pronounce yeah. your last name, depending on the time and what room you're in or whatever. And he goes, you want to know my last name is? It's Winner. <laughs> and everybody's like, oh, 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 oh. And he was also asked at an event recently about January 6th. Yeah. And his response was, look, I can win. We need to win. And it's like, he didn't even try to answer the freaking question. Yeah. Right? Like, it's inartful. He's just- He's just he's lost many steps since it's like he realized he was slipping. He's sort of panicked a little bit. Now, to be fair to him, like I always said, when Trump went after little Marco or low energy Jeb, they immediately imploded within like a week or two to like two percent. Right? Yeah. And he hasn't done that, to be fair to him. But he's clearly, clearly struggling. And on uh, the specifics of what he said in this clip, like the IRS thing. Never going to happen. Number one. Number two, you're always going to need some sort of agency to do tax collection. Right. As long as you have any taxes whatsoever. It doesn't matter how low you want your taxes. If you have any taxes whatsoever, if you don't want to go to anarcho-communism, <laughs> you're going to have to have some agency to collect it. And even if he's just referring to, like, the Joe Biden you know, expansion of the IRS, like, let's roll back to Joe, ex- uh, Joe Biden expansion of the IRS, that only applies to people who make $400,000 a year or more. There's 87,000 new IRS agents. The IRS was stripped to the bone, and you know what they do in that situation when they don't have many resources? They go after working-class people because it's easier to do it. You don't Mm -hmm. need the team of accountants and lawyers and experts and stuff. So they really beefed it up to go after the wealthy more. And he's out there saying, abolish the IRS completely. And then, of course, he can't help himself. Wokeness had to come out because he can't go three sentences without invoking wokeness. Right. And then we get the, like, it's so online, not only to bring up the trans stuff, which he brings up all the time as well. But when you get to DEI and CRT, I'm not kidding when I say a strong majority of the American people be like, what is any of that? Well, I don't know what D- DEI is. They couldn't tell you it's diversity, equity, inclusion or what that means. They can't tell you CRT means
1: critical race theory or what that means. And even if somebody he brings up ESG. Then people will really be like, what? Yeah. <laughs>
0: and, if, and even if some people know what CRT is, they might just think, oh, yeah, CRT, critical race theory. I guess that's, uh, you know, teaching Martin Luther King stuff or something like people. People don't know this shit. And he's like, he's appealing to Elon Musk and David Sachs and a couple of terminally online freaks who do not have their finger on the pulse at all. And, you know, now certain things will happen as a result of this and they're not good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, with DeSantis in terms of his political positioning, um, his argument was once I get in the race and people really, you know, I'm able to go head to head with Trump, then it's going to change. And that's when I'm going to be able to rise up in the polls. That's when people are going to fall off of Trump, et cetera. And the opposite has happened. The more that people have seen him in the, you know, the scrutiny, the more that he's been in the spotlight, the more the polls have kind of, and not even just the disastrous launch, which was kind of an omen of things to come, but it's just sort of steadily slid from there. So I was looking the other day at his peak he was getting about 30% in the polls consistently. That was like the average. And now he's more like 20%, 19%. So that's about the level of fall off. And that's really significant because at the same time, that allows Trump to be over 50%. So now it's it's not just, all right, I got to consolidate all these potentially, like I'm ready to move on from Trump people. It's like, oh, now you got to pull people off of the big guy. See, e- even if it was just
0: Trump versus DeSantis, which is a best case scenario for DeSantis. Yeah. Even if you do that. So give DeSantis literally all of the votes of all the people who are going to the other candidates. Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Mike Pence, fill in the blank, Chris Christie, everybody. Give him all their votes. He goes up to like 30 or 35 percent. So even if you say, here, have all these other people, it's still like, so he's he's waffling, man. He's waffling. And stuff like this, I, like, he thinks it's going to help him because he's like, I'm going to beat a Trump's right.
1: Yeah. Nobody fucking cares, one, bro. And Nobody one, cares. one last point on this. I mean, it's not even clear to me as, like, reading the room correctly, even within the Republican base, because I was just looking at the polling on this for in anticipation of my debate with that no labels dude about how people feel about taxing the rich to go back to taxation and the IRS. And far from them wanting to disband the IRS, they want to increase taxes on the wealthy. And not just the general public was at, like, 75% or something, but even self-identified Republicans, it was like 60% were like, yes, taxes. My biggest concern is lifting tax in terms of the tax code is lifting taxes on the wealthy and corporations. So
0: I think that taxes is a good note to end on now that we're about to interview a libertarian.
1: Yes, (laughs) indeed. Um, Mike Termont, he is a candidate for the libertarian nomination for president of the United States. Let's get to it.
0: Welcome, libertarian presidential candidate Mike Termott. We appreciate you joining us.
3: Thank you. It's a joy to be with you guys today. Thanks for yes, making our time pleasure. to chat.
0: Yeah, our pleasure. I was looking forward to this. So, look, for for I would say, you know, my politics, I'm I'm fairly social democratic in, in my approach to politics, but I've also been categorized and I've taken some political quizzes, and it says I'm like libertarian left. So what that kind of means is on social issues, i am massively live and let live. On economic issues, I'm in favor of state intervention and regulation and things of that nature. But believe it or not, I actually have like a lot of agreement with libertarians where there's so many libertarians that actually uh, watch my show because, you know, when it comes to issues of civil liberties or when it comes to uh, social policy like the drug war, when it comes to war, war on all those things, libertarians That's tend right. to, Agree, so so they watch my show. So I guess what I would start by uh, asking you is, what are your uh, top policy priorities? What's the policy agenda that you're gonna, you know, try to get implemented if you were to make it to the White House?
3: The big policy agenda, which by the way we call the Gold New Deal, right? It's a collection of the most transformative libertarian ideas, and the reason we separately brand it and it has its own URL, by the way. The reason for that is because we believe that it's very important for the Libertarian candidate to demonstrate a commitment to it so that we don't uh, back down from it. We don't have any incentive or even uh, flexibility to back down from it on the other side of the nomination, uh, nor uh, after the White House is is won, if that were ever to, uh, to come to pass. The idea being that we believe that we need a new and fundamentally different relationship between us and the government. We believe that the government has grown uh, in terms of size and scope in a way that's wholly inappropriate over the past uh, several generations. But certainly in recent times, I would argue in the past 20 years, for example, because of the, the warring, the silly warring between the Republican and the Democratic Party, we have found ourselves left with a government that is far too authoritarian, that is in no small part a government that has left behind any attenuation to the Constitution in the first place. We're heartened to see that the Supreme Court is recently trying to shore up that relationship between government and the Constitution, but we do believe that the government has found itself completely uh, without uh, any need to reference the Constitution at this point. So we believe that to get back to where we need to be, uh, we believe a program of decentralizing power out to the states is uh, is is crucial. We believe that certain institutions inside the government need to be winnowed down and ultimately sunset completely., uh, there are plenty of examples of of those in the news recently. Uh, certainly, I would put the FBI, for example, and the Federal Reserve System in that category of institutions that have demonstrated over time that you cannot rectify the situation just by replacing the leadership. That at some fundamental level, their inability to they they have an inability to live up to the mandate that we have given those institutions. As a couple of examples, and therefore a, a real fundamental restructuring is necessary. and And those uh, agencies would would have to go. So those are important elements. And the relationship between us and the federal government in terms of uh, fiscal management, I believe is inappropriate as well. The idea that the IRS exists to reach out to individuals to raise money, I think is, is counterintuitive if you were to look at it through the eyes of the founding fathers and the eyes of someone who believes in a delimited powers form of government, if you were to look at it from the standpoint of our constitution. I do think that to the extent to which the federal government needs to raise money, and I'm not an anarchist, I'm not suggesting that in no circumstance should the government, uh, the federal government be allowed to raise money, but to the extent to which it needs money, it should be going to the states to get it. It should not be going to individuals. Anyone who's been audited by the IRS, as I have been, uh, knows that, that that fight between you and Washington is a lopsided one notwithstanding the fact that you may be quite correct, it can be a very intimidating and inappropriately so, inappropriately intimidating process. And I think that state houses are in a much better position to stand up to the federal government. And so, through that vehicle of decentralizing power, maybe we can get the federal government under control.
1: So, Mike, I want to dig into that a little bit more. But first, I want to ask you, so you just, um, you know, had a pretty clear cut ideological critique of federal government power and um, authoritarianism. Do you also have a critique of corporate power and authoritarianism? Because a lot of people in their day to day lives, they're just as much controlled by, you know, their corporate boss. What they're able to earn, what their schedule looks like, what their you know a- time they're able to have with their kids, um, what array of choices they're able to have in terms of you know consumer goods, health insurance, basic quality of life. Um, we've seen. In our uh, in recent eras, huge consolidation, huge monopoly power from corporations, and then you also have this unholy alliance between corporate America and government, where because their money is so important and so significant to campaigns, you basically have politicians doing their bidding. So, do you have a similar critique of corporate power?
3: Well, it's similar and different, right? Uh, where we have had consolidation, where corporations have been able to achieve monopoly power, and we should be clear. Many, many corporations and many, many industries uh, uh, attempt to achieve monopoly power, whether they get there or not, sure. uh, so often they are able to achieve a certain power and influence over the relationship with their consumers that is, is not completely healthy, as you point out. The biggest problem, in, in my view, the biggest problem is, as you put it, the unholy alliance uh, between government and corporations, that's where the real problems come in.
1: so then do um, you support things like getting money out of politics constitutional amendment to make that yes. possible? What's the solution yes. to that?
3: yes uh the unholy Alliance I believe shows up in a couple of places more than others. for example, defense contracting is an area where we have we have I believe as a nation as a as a citizenry we have lost. The, the simple dignity of having a foreign policy that reflects our values, that reflects our way of thinking, that reflects the way that we want to live our lives, to let others live their lives and, and let us pursue you know, our own personal agenda as we see fit to live our lives by our own standards, that is not reflected by our foreign policy. Our foreign policy has been captured by a combination of politicians leveraging fear and the military industrial complex. That is, that is no joke. That is not just an old saying from the Eisenhower era. That is, that is something that actually exists and exerts a tremendous amount of influence over our foreign policy. Just as one example, to your point, uh, another example is of course, where the government has given, uh, I don't wanna quite say carte blanche, but has given a tremendous amount of power to big pharma in the healthcare space because it has allowed pharmaceutical companies not only to consolidate, particularly functionally, uh, not just industrially but particularly along lines of specific drugs, for example, and has allowed it to do so in the absence of liability, right? Federal statute says that pharmaceutical companies are very difficult targets to be held accountable when things go wrong with vaccines or drugs or any other type of, uh, provision of healthcare. I find that wholly inappropriate now, as an aside, as you might imagine, having been a police officer myself, I spend a lot of time talking about criminal justice reform. And in that space, I also find it inappropriate that the government so often holds harmless police officers, which makes it difficult to hold both officers and agencies accountable when necessary, just as an aside, as an example, and, and there are other uh, examples as well. So we do need to get the government out of corporate America. Uh, banking is another example where, uh, and to your point, the banking industry has had tremendous influence uh, over the government in ways that are both good and bad. We can, we can tease that out. Uh, but to the extent to which financial institutions have been bailed out by the Federal Reserve System and by the Treasury Department. That is extremely problematic and, of course, is motivated in no small part by executives who want to take enormous risks with customers' money, knowing that they personally won't be held liable. All too often, their institutions will be protected from being held uh, accountable, both in a criminal sense Uh, legal liability sense, but also in a financial sense. These things are uh, wholly inappropriate and really undermine the efficiency with which our economy runs, uh, to your point. And yes, in answer to your later question, we do need to get uh, the money from corporate America out of influencing politics. But the way to do that, is to make it more possible for everyone to participate in the system. And yeah. one of the ways you do that is by deregulating uh, the federal government's grip on social media, which I also find inappropriate.
1: Um, so there's a lot there. One, one piece I want to push you on is you said that you want to get government out of corporate America. There are parts of it I agree with, but to me, that seems like the total opposite direction to go in. And you know, I'm not for regulation for regulation's sake. But I think with this whole submersible down to the Titanic situation, you had a pretty clear example of where you could have really used some additional regulation requiring the submersible to meet basic standards of safety. And you very well would not have lost the lives on board. And this doesn't seem like a problem that like, you know, the free market would just fix with perfect information. Granted, now I think there are going to be a lot fewer uh, people going on submersibles down to the Titanic, but at a grave cost to those people's lives and their families.
3: I would disagree with that at a fundamental level, as well as at a practical level. I don't believe it's an example where regulation would help. Uh, What the experts have said is stupid is as stupid does. I believe that that is true. There were plenty of people who knew that there were problems with that submersible. And I don't want to get into technical details because a lot has yet to be revealed about the situation. But I, I, I frankly don't see a reason why you would not believe that Greater information would not come out, and that markets would not correct this situation. I think that it's very likely that we'll we will be going in the right. Well, direction. people had to this, die
0: to to give us that information, right? right. Like the it's submersible community, call. the submersible community was being badgered by uh, experts in the industry who were basically saying, "Look, you're not up to our standards, and there's going to be a disaster here." And in fact, the CEO fired somebody who he hired, brought on for safety reasons. The guy released a report and was like. Listen, man, this thing is not safe to go below 1,000 meters. And, of course, the Titanic's 4,000 meters down. And he fired the person on the spot as soon as he released the report. So isn't this an instance? I get it that the libertarians are skeptical of uh, regulation from the government on industry. But doesn't does don't like the specifics matter? Aren't there some regulations which are just obviously rational and then others that are not? And the ones that are not good we can get rid of. But the ones that we need, it makes sense to keep. Or.
3: Are... You're conflating the word regulation with government. I think that that may be where you and I uh, part ways. Yes, an outside force, an outside view, an outside source of information, a third party, uh, whether that comes from an insurance company or outside experts, can be enormously uh, influential and enormously helpful. We have plenty of examples uh, down through the generations of organizations that that get together either uh, pooled in an industry or through their requirements to have insurance involved and uh, have flaws brought to light, problems brought to light that don't require the government to do so. This is an enormous tragedy, tragedy. there's no question about that. I don't think there's a counter argument to how disappointed we are and how badly we feel for the individuals who lost their lives and the enormous tragedy that it represents for the families as well as uh less importantly perhaps the people that believed in this project uh and and the people that wanted there to be further exploration in this area uh to go forward so there's there's plenty of disappointment to go around i hope that no one thinks that you know we're trying to either you or I are trying to mount some sort of an argument that says, you know, too bad, so sad, this doesn't matter. That's not at all where I think that uh, this conversation should be going. The issue really is, should people be allowed to make decisions for themselves? And should the government have not only the authority to say, here's what's going on, here's the information you need, but to shut down by force to shut down individuals' rights, to pursue something that is enormously risky. This is not, uh, you know, making sure that something you plug into the wall every day uh, works well, right? This is a very unusual circumstance. Uh, Of all the things that we regulate in the world, I, I'm not sure why we're picking this. Uh, well, because a bunch of example. people just
0: died. That's because why. It's a, clear example. it's a clear example. Like, here, let me let me ask you this. I'll give you another example. Like, what is authoritarian versus what is just a basic regulation? So like seatbelts, for example, are they authoritarian or is it just a basic regulation where, you know, people should be required by law to wear their seatbelt?
3: Uh, Well, it's it's definitionally authoritarian. What you and I are talking about is whether or not that's a good idea. I don't think there's a counter argument that says it's not authoritarian. Uh, What what we're saying is the government has assumed to itself the authority to make decisions for you, whether you think they're good or bad. Uh, I personally think it's a good idea to wear a seatbelt. But, you know, there are other people who don't, I suppose. Uh, but the government assumes to itself the authority to make that decision for you. So it's definitionally authoritarian. What we're just discussing is whether we should be ceding some of our civil liberties to the government in order to make the world safer. Would you agree that that's the... An accurate characterization of what we're discussing
0: so i would not use the term authoritarian for seatbelts i would just say it's a basic regulation i'll give you another example there was just a big earthquake well, what would you consider
3: authoritarian help me well, uh, with the so, counter example what's so the, difference the distinction between a regulatory i'm trying to draw structure and authoritarianism
0: the distinction i'm trying to draw is that this isn't just like authoritarian or libertarian it's not like freedom versus anti-freedom there's this massive area in the middle which is a gray area and there's a spectrum and so the, whatever minor trade-off there is to wear seatbelts, I think, is basically worth it, which is why I wouldn't categorize it as authoritarian. I'll give you another example. There was a giant earthquake so in Turkey recently. You're saying
3: authoritarian is defined by whether or not you think it's a good idea?
0: Well, I mean, I think that's the debate everybody has all day long when it comes to government. So, of course. So let me give you well, another I example. I want to hear agree, your response to this. but that's
3: not the definition of authoritarian. I want to hear your itself.
0: response to this. There was a big uh, earthquake in Turkey not too long ago. And what we found, a bunch of buildings collapsed and they weren't supposed to collapse. And what we found out is basically there was corruption going on where um, Turkish officials were getting paid off. And they were then allowing these builders to flout basic building safety regulations. So effectively, a large percentage of the buildings in Turkey did not have safety regulations associated with them. Would you say that having those building regulations is authoritarian?
3: I would say the government shoving down your throat certain rules is authoritarian, but I think you and I should agree that that's the definition of authoritarian. I don't wanna get into a semantics debate with you. The issue is whether this should be handled at a government level or whether it should be handled at an industrial level. You mentioned that this was the result of corruption. No one should be uh, in the corner of corruption. No one is arguing that corruption is not a bad thing, right? Whether this was handled at the government or this was a coalition of industrial firms that were warranting uh, the workmanship or warranting the rules that were supposed to be followed, uh, you know that can work just as well. It can be undermined just as easily by corruption, whether it's handled at the government level or the industrial level.
0: But the end result was deregulation. So corruption. But hold on, the end result of that corruption was deregulation, right? So the corruption led to the preferred policy outcome. So oh, forget for you, So forget correct. the how it got there. Do you support the deregulation of the building codes?
3: I support the idea that industry can put into effect a regulatory structure as effectively as the government. Would you agree that the government having done it did not protect the people in Turkey?
0: Well- the only reason why it didn't protect them is because it wasn't enforced. If they enforced the building codes, then we would have been better off. No.
3: Uh, were it not for uh, a corrupt system, uh, those people might have been uh, more safe. I think that I, we can because the building
0: codes are good. That's the point, right?
3: Uh, I, I, I appreciate why you want to use the word code. But
0: Call whatever uh, you want, authoritarian building codes. I'd still support it. You can call whatever you want. To, At the end of the day, more regulation. people will be alive with the building codes.
3: Let's stick to regulation. Do industries have an interest in coming together and forming some regulatory body of work that they agree to live by and have some outside uh, uh, inspection by an insurance company, for example, in order to warrant that the work has been done to... Uh, to regulation to standard
0: Oftentimes in order
3: no. for people to believe that it's safe i think that's a good structure i don't i don't see any argument why that has to be done at the at the governmental level corruption is corruption
1: well because the industry has one goal and that's to make money and predominantly to make as much money in the short term as possible society may have other goals like the buildings withstanding an earthquake or People having right, health which is insurance why we agree that some regulatory infrastructure so, might make sense. Hold on a second. So that's why these things, many of them, it makes sense to be done at the governmental level where you have the input of citizenry on societal goals that may be separate and apart from the profit motive. So, you know, I think we have many examples of industries when like left to their own they cut corners. They don't take safety seriously. They do everything they can to exploit workers or, you know, as we've seen recently to jack up prices and price gouge using the expl- ex- excuse of inflation. We see the way that banks manipulated people and deceived them lot into getting of into...
3: There. Why don't we unpack those?
1: Well, hold on. Let me let me just finish. I mean, we've seen the way that banks will manipulate their customers and uh, into, you know, taking on loans that they're going to be wildly unaffordable. There's There's an assumption here, too, from you that people are going to have perfect information and the expertise to be able to sort through all these issues that makes them vulnerable to being preyed upon by big banks or tech industry or big pharma, et cetera. Yeah,
3: I I don't think I said any of that. I don't know where you got that Um, with all due respect. Uh, No, I didn't say the customers would automatically have perfect information. They'd be able to stand up to big pharma or big banks. Uh, I'm not presuming that, Uh, there aren't uh, large institutions and small institutions that would be perfectly comfortable manipulating their customers. And I'm not suggesting there isn't such a thing as corruption and fraud. All of that is absolutely true. I'm just pointing out that as much as you and I may agree, if you could let me agree with you, that a regulatory framework may be a good idea in certain situations, maybe many situations, that that framework doesn't necessarily need to reside with an elected democratically uh, fostered institutional government that those but why dots do you think they'll connect? do it on
0: their own? I don't understand that. Why do you think the industry will do it on their own? That seems totally ahistorical.
3: No, it's actually quite historical. Uh, most uh, standardization in the United States is handled in the private sector.
1: How is the safety of workers During, you know, the like Dickensian era when industry had more carte blanche, did they regulate themselves and make sure there weren't kids in the sweatshops and people losing limbs every day? I mean, there seems like some basic safety metrics that they're going to cut corners on as much as they possibly can, because, again, and you didn't you didn't reckon reckon with the core of my argument, which was that the reason you don't want industry boards providing this regulatory framework is because they have one interest which is profit maximization and society as represented by the government may have other interests and likely does have other interests separate and apart from the profit motive, which is why it's appropriate for the federal government or state government to house that regulatory and enforce that regulatory framework.
3: Uh, I understand to get back to the, 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 the safety issue to begin with the vast majority of improvements in the United States regarding worker safety were fostered by the government working in conjunction with unions. There's really no reason to believe that unions would not have been able to make similar advancements even without uh, OSHA. And we all know the inefficiencies of OSHA, and I'm not trying to argue that the government uh, did not try to do as good a job as possible, try to do as inefficient job as possible. We all know that the government as much as you might be frustrated, I might be frustrated by certain inefficiencies. The government is largely uh, uh, comprised of individuals who are trying to do the right thing. But having said that, uh, there's you know the the early 20th century is really a lesson in the fact that private sector unions uh, rose up. Uh, offered advantages to the relationship between employers and employees. Offered advantages to employees mm-hmm. that prevented from uh, prevented uh, what people like Karl Marx had predicted what would happen that there would be a complete uh, collapse of that relationship and that it could only be handled in some weird form of revolution. That never happened because advancements were made, and I, I do appreciate that at you know, the the turn of the Industrial Revolution, things did stink. And no one should be arguing that we want to, you know, go back to that. We have a great deal more information about how to keep people safe and uh, a a great, uh, much better role for employees in managing the relationship with their employers uh, today. But to your point, would industries uh, and I think this is where you're going, would industries do a better or a worse job at policing themselves in the case uh, where a regulatory framework needs to be put in place? I think that is necessarily something that has to be teased out on in an industry-by-industry industry basis. In terms of financial services, for example, I don't think there's any question that the, the industry would work better without the government. Uh, I, I don't really think that there's a strong counter argument to that. Uh,
1: Maybe because the, ever go- since we've started deregulating Wall Street, they have taken increasingly reckless and catastrophic bets when would that you have nearly crashed the entire global economy. What's that? Well, when would the, you I mean, argue
3: we began deregulating financial services?
1: Certainly, ending Glass-Steagall was a big part of it. Where you take banking that was from the being, 90s. you know, after listen after the Great Depression, right? Glass-Steagall was, was. Hold on, let me let me let me lay this down a little bit. So after the Great Depression, there was this recognition of like, hey, we can't just let these people do whatever they want because they crash the entire economy and it was really a disaster. And so there was a public consensus in favor of increasing uh, banking and Wall Street regulation. And, you know, largely it was imperfect and there were blips along the way, but largely making banking sort of boring and staid and more tightly controlled was relatively effective. That starts to come and glued during the neoliberal era, starts in the Reagan era, codified under the Clinton era, et cetera. And so banking becomes just like this casino where they are left more to their own devices to regulate themselves and do whatever they want. And not to mention, they bought off a bunch of politicians, as we dis- discussed before, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, now you have, you know, preying upon their customers as much as possible. Now you have too big to fail and monopoly powers and wild risk-taking, et cetera.
3: No, that is a profound misreading of history and a mischaracterization of the world in which we live today. Glass-Steagall did not help relieve the risks that caused the Great Depression. It absolutely which were- did.
0: What is Glass-Steagall? Tell everybody what
3: Glass-Steagall is. Glass-Steagall was a framework that said that deposit-taking institutions and investment banking institutions had to be separated, that we did not want the federal government to be backing up institutions that were in the business of financing uh, certain elements of the stock market. And it was believed at the time that the bubble that was created in the 1920s which burst and contributed massively to the Great Depression, at least the initiation of the Great Depression, was caused uh, by banking organizations and their backing from the federal government. We know today uh, that that was largely untrue and that the depths of the Great Depression were actually caused by a reversal of monetary policy that was in exactly the wrong direction to try to help the United States emerge from the depression, both the initiation and the tremendous depths of the depression were caused by bad monetary policy. we understand that today, the structure of the financial institutions actually had a grand total of nothing to do with it, which is of course, why uh, financial institutions as well as regulators As well as legislators, as well as economists, as well as historians, all agree that it didn't make sense to continue Glass-Steagall any further and uh, reduce those uh, uh, those firewalls uh, some thirty some years ago. But having said all of that, the the lowering of those particular regulatory barriers are not the reasons why uh, we led to too big to fail. Uh, or the problems that we had in 2007-2008. The Great Recession was caused, again, by bad uh, federal policy in the financial services area, specifically pumping up Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, despite having no capital requirements for those organizations. And the reason the private sector did not require those organizations to have more capital reserves was because everybody perceived that the Treasury Department would back up Fannie and Freddie. And Fannie and Freddie, of course, claimed year after year that the Treasury Department would not back them up, that they were completely independent. And of course, when it hit the fan, uh, the skeptics were proved correct. Treasury did back up Fannie and Freddie, and and, uh, the, the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve in conjunction, did bail out uh, certain financial institutions completely against what would be in the long run interests. Uh, I think that you and I would agree on this point that the government should not be bailing out uh, financial services organizations or any other type of organization when we head into a recession, that we need to teach these organizations a lesson uh, that they can't take these risks, that they need to maintain greater capital requirements.
1: I mean, there was- There was outright fraud from the banks in terms of, first of all, I mean, in terms of what they were telling people that these mortgages meant. As you know, they were taking a bunch of mortgages, putting them together, chopping them down into bits, selling them off in these exotic instruments that the assumption was just, oh, if it's a mortgage, then it's safe. And so there was a lot of fraud and deception going on. But even putting that history aside, let's take another example, crypto.
0: Wait, can Which- I just respond to some of the points on this specific issue? Because you went through a lot there with the Great Depression and the Great Recession. So i sorry to cut you off. But uh, so for the bail- on the bailout point. Yes, I agree. And Crystal agrees we shouldn't bail out anybody at the top. They made bad decisions for their own volition and they should suffer the consequences on that. Where we probably disagree is that I would have no problem with bailing out the people at the bottom who are getting kicked out of their homes. And these are regular people who make regular wages, and they would have been screwed if we just said total hands-off, don't do anything in the wake of the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. Beyond that, the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. Um, One of the problems here was, again, a lack of regulation of the housing market. I don't know why anybody thinks ballooning rate mortgages should have been legal. This is an example of the government should have stepped in and said, no, you're not allowed to do that. There's 30 year fixed rate mortgages. If you want to have leverage rules associated with this as well, you want to have strict standards as to who can get a mortgage and who can't get a mortgage. These are all things that should have been taken care of, not at the at the financial corporate level. There should be rules and regulations that were strict on this front to make it so that, you know, the people on Wall Street aren't effectively gambling. And then to get all the way back to the Great Depression to respond to your points there. Glass-Steagall was, right on Glass was simply separating commercial banking and investment banking. So if you oppose Glass-Steagall, what you're saying is that uh, a bank should be able to take money that's uh, put into it by some grandma who makes $30,000 a year, and they should be able to turn around and bet on penny stocks and make like wild speculatory bets with that investment money. That's a terrible idea. Of course, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. Glass-Steagall is a no-brainer. This is why every, uh, almost every economist, except hardcore, you know, anarcho-capitalist, libertarian ones, agree that that was a, a perfectly reasonable legislation, and it's what led to we had a, a very decades in this country of a stable banking system because we prevented the greediest guys in the room from making wild, speculatory bets with grandma's money.
3: Uh, no, that's actually not what happened.
0: Not surprised uh, for you to say
3: that. <laughs> to, to go back, well, I mean, it's just it's, it's a misreading of history, Eric. Uh, I mean, we can argue about what's good and bad, but I think that we ought to at least have a common understanding of what happened in the 20th century. Look, uh, I agree that the banks made a lot of bad decisions extending credit to people that, to, to whom they should not have been extending credit in the way that they did it right that's the fundamental point you were making with which i agree but uh, it is a misreading of recent and and quite clear history to say that's because of an absence of regulation remember be, because of the community reinvestment act and other regulations there was tremendous pressure on financial institutions to explore, and some some people would argue exploit uh, these markets. These institutions were given uh, a certain amount of latitude in terms of mergers and acquisitions, uh, in certain uh, applications to conduct business across state lines. Uh, They were given uh, favorable outcomes in terms of their applications to regulatory authorities to enter into new businesses if, and only if, they could demonstrate that they were extending a great deal of credit and providing a great deal of service in what were called historically uh, underserved communities. And that was where it began. I'm not arguing this is uh, a good thing. Please understand. I think this is a, a bad thing. I'm trying to agree with you that, but this is where it started for banks to exploit uh, these communities The balance sheets were expanded in these areas. The the, uh, balance sheets of financial institutions were expanded tremendously in these areas in ways that the the banking industry did not have expertise, did not have historical data on how this this would go if there were a recession. 2005, 2006, there was reason uh, to be concerned. And as it turned out, uh, when there was a downturn, when there was the beginning of uh, what could have been a mild recession, housing prices went south. And the performance of these new portfolios was horrendous. And banks started to fail. And Fannie and Freddie in particular was on the hook for a lot of money. And you're right. These losses cascaded in, in ways that were up until then relatively uh, unpredictable. Uh, I would be careful about throwing the word fraud around. I think that implies that people knew what was going to happen. And in the main, people did not understand what was, you know, what was going to happen. They were into portfolios that, that they, they, they shouldn't have been into that they didn't understand. Um, regarding, uh, Glass-Steagall, it, it, it's just not true that that was you know the firewall that kept institutions institutions from doing dumb things. As you know, defo- deposits are protected by the FDIC, which is uh, an ostensibly uh, private financed organization, which is uh, controlled by by Congress. It's backed mm-hmm. up by the Treasury Department. The FDIC is what promulgates most of the rules regarding what banks are allowed to do in terms of taking risks, as long as they're not one of these gigantic institutions that's labeled by the Federal Reserve System as too big to fail. When the Federal Reserve System decides you're too big to fail, then they decide to regulate uh, you themselves. I think this is, uh, you know, potentially a very, very dangerous situation because what the Fed is doing, uh, perhaps unwittingly, is labeling these institutions as those that are going to survive, no matter what risk they take, and therefore they're actually putting these institutions in a favorable position to take on enormous risks. And I think that you and I would probably agree that that's uh, inappropriate,
1: yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of problems with the current banking system. We basically have privatized uh, you know privatized profits and socialized the losses there. I don't think anyone at this table is going to disagree with that. But I would just say you should get out of the the business of
3: socializing those losses,
1: putting putting the, um, you know, the contested history aside, which, you know, I think you're not going to agree with us on. It seems to me like we have a perfect test case of the world that you want, and that's crypto, which is sort of this, you know, libertarian or anarcho-libertarian dream. That uh, you know there won't be as much government regulation involved. There'll be innovation. The right coins will rise to the top. This could take over national currencies, etc. And instead, what you've seen is, that is instead what you've fraud. seen is fraud. the biggest fraudsters, liars, and scam artists routinely rise to the top of that industry. So doesn't that just prove that when you have this sort of like regulation-free wild, wild west landscape? that guess who's rewarded it's like the biggest psychopath scam artist and fraud and uh, con artist.
3: No, I'm sorry. You've, you've connected dots that don't belong in the same page, but that's what uh, happened. I, I, I assume that you're referring to like uh, Sam Friedman, right?
1: And CZ. and, and, and CZ. how many, yeah, the list is how long, how many dude. rug pulls <laughs> have there been and how many people have like hyped something up and then they just take the money and run. I mean, Massive insider trading scandals, tons of of issues in this industry.
3: Well, first of all, insider trading is regulated, but never mind that. But it
1: it wasn't enforced is the problem.
3: Okay. Sam took people's money and lied to them, right? Right. Can we agree that this was a case of fraud?
0: Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. That's the whole point. Okay,
3: thank you. Uh, fraud is illegal in the United States. Can we agree on that? Yep. Yeah. And I think we should agree that fraud should be illegal in the United States, as it is around the world. Can we agree with that? Absolutely. Okay. He took people's money, not in the form of crypto. He took people's American, you know, Federal Reserve-backed, Treasury Mm Department-issued U.S. dollars, and he kept them, and he spent them. Can we agree that's what happened?
1: Yes, yeah, they were in you know, the FTX Alameda, yes.
3: Thank you. That is not a crypto story. When you steal someone's- <laughs> a common you- crypto story. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm sorry. That's just a mischaracterization. I, I appreciate why you want to characterize it as such, because... Because I read
0: the news. It's, a crypto, become
1: clear yet. it's a, a crypto exchange. And then he was using a, a, these uh, crypto accounts to bet on, you know, the other side in the, like, crypto investment fund. And it's true that I actually agree with you that I think that we have a lot of the regulation, although perhaps not all of the regulation in place to curb and check this industry in the way that it should be, but it was not being enforced, clearly. And there was a huge regulatory fight going on between the SEC and various other agencies about who was going to have jurisdiction. You also have the instance of uh, CZ, which is the largest crypto exchange in the entire planet. He runs it, and he was aggressively trying to get around being regulated by any um, country. Uh, and you know is now being accused of all sorts of fraudulent behavior. And he was supposed to be
0: the good guy. He was supposed to be the hey. This is our example of crypto working phenomenally well.
1: <laughs> um. So you know, I think I think there's a lot of evidence there that when you have an environment that is not effectively regulated and that regulation enforced, you have quite a bit of fraud, which should be illegal, and you know manipulation of people that may not be outright uh, illegal. Where people who are Believing in the crypto dream are getting preyed upon.
3: Okay, thank you for all of that. Look, let's uh, let's quickly move toward a discussion of crypto, if if you would like, and if, if if that's not on your agenda, we don't have to. But before we move to crypto, let's talk about these cases of theft, of fraud. These cases are examples, and let's be honest. Uh, examples drawn from many hundred thousands down through the generations of people stealing each other's money. These examples that you've picked out, which are horrible. No one should be arguing that they're not, you know, horrible things that happened. These are examples of people who have taken other people's money,
1: Mm -hmm. not
3: their crypto, but their money Mm -hmm. and they stole it. They kept it. They defrauded them out of their money. It is not true that that money was invested in crypto and crypto taint, That there was something wrong with crypto. The money could have been invested in, you know, fish markets uh, or multifamily housing. It 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 doesn't matter. Fraud is sure. Fraud. But the point
1: is the point is that because it was uh, a crypto aligned or affiliated or however you want to call it business, you can't pretend like there was no crypto involved here. And because but they invested in and, and because they intentionally uh, located in the Bahamas to try to avoid regulation, that's part of why they were able to persist with this illegal no. scheme of fraud how would and theft for so long.
3: Any okay, how would this story be one iota different if Sam Bankman Friedman had said, "I'm going to invest it in multifamily housing"? What would have been the difference? none this is a story that literally has nothing to do with crypto but except for the fact that he said but
0: it's the but whole industry why are you ignoring I'm going that?
3: to invest it in crypto people get defrauded all the time i'm not arguing this is a good thing by the way we know i'm we arguing know. that the problem that you put your finger on is actually bigger than maybe
1: but you, your but you are also arguing that, that the industry would regulate itself and, and this that clearly endemic. has not crypto. happened.
0: <laughs> this is endemic to crypto. It's like it's as a as a percentage, as a raw number, there's a lot more of this going on in crypto than almost any other random industry you might pick out.
3: Uh, not as a historic matter. Uh, yes, at the moment, because... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I didn't go say ahead. anything. Go we're, ahead. we're listening. Okay. When new asset classes are formed... Yes, you you typically see fraudsters come in. This is a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. Uh, But it is not true that something went wrong with crypto markets that fostered this. I'm not arguing this is a good thing. I don't know why you and I are disagreeing. This is a very bad thing. We know you're not arguing that. No, no. That's not what we're responding to. The
1: key point here is that the but the key point industry, here is that the money
3: was never invested in crypto. The crypto, crypto That's why did not regulate their itself. Money. It had nothing to do with crypto. If yeah, it had been invested FTX in crypto, maybe they would have gotten some of their money back.
1: FTX is one example, right? You have so much fraud, so much hype, so many scams, so many rug pulls, all of this going on in the crypto industry. And the key point is... Your theory is that this industry would regulate itself and that people would actually be better off and it would be safer than the government regulating it. And I don't see any evidence that this industry planned on regulating itself.
3: When crypto runs on blockchain technology, there are multiple, and and you know this, your viewers know this, but uh, just to quickly uh, level set, when, when currencies are running blo- and other transactions and contracts are running blockchain, blockchain technology, it takes the potential for fraud out of it. That's part of the reason why we want for blockchain technology to be more uh, ubiquitous in its uh, deployment. Cryptocurrency is just one application of what can run on blockchain. Cryptocurrency is just one uh, example of a type of contract that can run on blockchain technology. The reason we had all this fraud is because it was not run on blockchain technology. There was not a trail of transactions. Uh, As it turns out, the money was never invested in crypto. Uh, These people just stole it. Uh, It is a a horrible thing. Now, uh, regarding crypto, do we believe that uh, it could play a major role in the American international economy in the future. Absolutely, time will tell. I don't believe there's a counter-argument against the the increasingly uh, verifiable fact that our economy is going to move toward what we call a smart economy. We're going to reach an inflection point in probably la- uh, less than ten years, where. Uh, an enormous number of contracts are going to be running on blockchain technology in the future and that it's going to be incumbent upon all kinds of not only financial institutions but other types of commercial players and eventually retail consumers and other participants are going to have to learn uh, how to use blockchain blockchain technology and it's going to make the world work a lot more efficiently. There are those who say it will have in the long run as much impact on our commercial economy, as the internet did, uh, I think that the 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 jury and the grand scheme of time uh, is out on whether that will will actually happen. Yeah, yeah. But, but well, I mean, yeah, we should not be in the business of presupposing how that is going to develop. I think we all want to live in a world where it's more difficult to defraud people, uh, where uh, you know, we, while our privacy is protected, um, it it will become relatively more difficult to defraud people uh, out of out of their money because transactions are are hidden. You know, we want a world okay. in which we have I something think, like blockchain technology.
0: I think our I think our positions are pretty clear on crypto, and let the audience you know decide and think whatever they want. Let me ask you this: so, uh,
3: are you anti crypto? I don't think I did understand what your position is. Well.
0: Go back and rewatch it, and you'll get a sense of where we're coming from on crypto. But I want to move off of it, because we've been talking about it for about 30 minutes. So on the issue of Social Security and Medicare, on the Democratic side, you have Joe Biden, who said, cuts to Social Security and Medicare off the table in the debt ceiling negotiation. And he stuck by that. They were off the table. You have Donald Trump, who's leading by, Jesus, what is it now, 40, 50 points on the Republican side. He's actually leaned into cuts to Social Security and Medicare off the table. So there appears to be a bit of a bipartisan consensus on this front. What say you on Social Security and Medicare?
3: Well, Social Security and Medicare, uh, object, however you feel about it, uh, and I suspect you and I feel differently, but however we feel about it, we ought to agree that in the long run, there's going to be restructuring required for entitlement programs in the United States. Just the just again, objectively speaking, as an empirical matter, the United States federal government cannot continue on the path that it's on and remain fiscally solvent Throughout the balance of this century, it just can't happen. Uh, what we're left discussing is what to do about that fact, right? Uh, the combination of the accrual of debt uh, and uh, the increase in costs uh, on the on the side of providing medical services and changes in demographic structure of the United States population you know these things are combining to suggest that there's no alternative but to restructure entitlements now the real issue is when and how i guess and i would argue that for example in the case of social security we we already know that requiring people to join in this program is telling them in effect uh, forcibly, that you're going to be required to participate uh, in a program that is guaranteed to give you uh, a crappy rate of return. In effect, a crappy rate of return. It's not actually an investment program, but if it if it were to be evaluated as as though it were an investment program, it's pretty much guaranteed to give you a, a crappy rate of return. And I think that we all ought to have an ethical pause about that fact. And it's not clear to me that the people that should bear the brunt of resolving Social Security uh, should be new young workers that we compel to bring into uh to bring into this system. I think that there's probably a more equitable fashion to resolve Social Security. So would uh, you let that,
0: me ask you this would you scrap it, privatize it, or cut it?
3: Uh, I think it's going to require, as a political matter, some combination of all three of those things. I don't think that you're going to run—I uh, I don't think that a viable option is out there that does not include elements of all three. So In let, other me words- you,
0: let me give you some numbers on this, just so that people understand where we're coming from here, because oftentimes it's said—and you actually didn't say this to your credit, but there are many people who say, oh, it's going bankrupt, it's going bankrupt. It's actually not. So it pays out full benefits until the year 2035— and then after that, it pays out 80% of its benefits and then until 2096, and then it slips down to 74%. That's Social Security. On the Medicare front, it's fully solvent through 2028. Then it pays between 80 and 90% of its benefits until 2096. So it actually required just minor changes. And the thing that's been floated by Joe Biden and others is you lift the cap on the Social Security tax, so you tax higher income earners a little more and make it so that you've fully funded as far as the eye can see. And I guess what I would ask you is, there was a study from the National Bureau of Economic Research that found that between 1960 and 1995, the poverty rate of people who are 65 years and older, it went from 35% all the way down to 10% because of social security. Is that really a program we want to get rid of?
3: I think you tacked on the end there because of social security. Uh, that's not a fair characterization of the NBER report. Yeah, Social that, Sec-
0: yes, it is. <laughs> when you give old people money, they tend to get out of poverty.
3: Where does the money come from that Social Security pays out? Taxes. comes from I'm, all I'm of throwing us. you a softball. I'm throwing you a softball here. Yeah, it
0: comes from all of us. It's taxes, which sometimes can be good.
3: Well, the tax itself isn't the good part. What you would argue the good part is that eventually it gets kicked back to people in their retirement.
0: Correct. Rational redistribution. Yes.
3: Okay. Yes. Giving people money gives them more money. But remember that social security is a program in which we take money away from people and then we give it back to them later at a reduced rate of return from what they would have earned in the private sector. Can we at least agree on that much?
0: Well, we can agree that 79% of Americans oppose cutting Social Security benefits. Oh, my good. Eric,
3: can we at least just my take this Kyle, one step at Eric.
0: My name is Kyle. But you can call me whatever you want. I really don't mind. Your
3: view says, Eric, I apologize.
0: That's our control room guy. It's not. It's okay. No Okay.
3: Worries. Well, hey, hi to Eric. I apologize. <laughs> All good. Okay. Social Security is a program in which we take money away from people and then we give it back to them. uh, But we give them less than what they would have gotten if they had invested that same amount of money in any of a broad array of investment vehicles in the private sector.
0: Yeah, but that's riskier. Would you agree to that? Isn't that riskier in the private sector?
3: Uh, In in some cases, but not in all cases, no. I mean, you could invest in Treasury uh, bills. And uh take on a, a modicum of risk. I mean, we can all debate about what the chances are of the federal government going bankrupt in your lifetime. It's not zero. I'll give you that. Uh you know, I argue that all the time. But for a relatively modest risk, you could, you know, probably double your rate of return. And 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 that that matters. I'm not suggesting that that per se ought to, ought to carry the day, right? But I don't think it's a fair statement. It's not really an accurate statement to say, well, these people are not in poverty because of Social Security. Yeah, they're, why they're not in not poverty. Fair, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I just
0: said, why is that not fair? It seems to stand to reason that if you give money to older folks and they happen to jump out of poverty from 35% all the way down to 10%, it seems On kind of
3: net- intuitively true, right? No, it's not. When you take money away from people and then you give them their money back, but less of it or less than they would have earned in the private sector, you're not helping them on a net basis. How you're is that not helping them? them?
0: Are you just going to ignore the numbers, though? That's clearly helping them. There's no other interpretation of that, but they're being helped. You might not agree with the redistribution, which is you could disagree with that on. We haven't even begun sure to talk do, about the redistribution it yet
3: when but you it take money away from When you take money away from people and then you give it back to them, but less of it, you're hurting them. Why is it
0: that only 6% of people agree with your position if it's such a common sense position and the government's just robbing your money and there aren't positives to this?
3: I don't think that people, well, I might ask you the same thing. I mean, uh, is yours a political argument or a mathematical one? When you take money away from people and then you give 95% of it back or 85% of it back, I don't think it's fair to say, well, uh, you know, they're not aware of the calculation. They're not aware of of how much money they could have made had they invested in the private sector. Uh, You know, maybe they're not aware of how much money they paid in. And so with the passage of time, do they appreciate the money that came their way? Of course they do. Uh, I don't think that anyone over the age of 65 who's who's receiving Social Security would say, "I don't want the money," right? But uh, if if you're aware of the fact that you could have had, in most cases, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars more than you are going to receive had you re- had you invested in the private sector, I think that people uh, would not view this so favorably. So the idea that we should be forcing people to continue in this uh, scheme, right, the the tax and distribution scheme, uh, I, I think it has an ethical problem. I think but that- the,
1: the proof is kind of in the pudding, though, in terms of the benefit. And this was the point that Kyle was trying to make. Yes, it and is, the benefits when, are
3: reduced from what you would get well, if you invested on, the money yourself. On.
1: But when you had, before the program, much higher levels of senior poverty.
0: That's your theory. And you tested. had
1: you had a consensus. Basically, we don't want old people eating cat food like this is unconscionable in wealthiest nation. And so you start this program. It is one of the most popular and most successful by the numbers, again, in reduction in senior poverty which is what it was aimed towards. One of the most successful social welfare programs, certainly in American history. And the reason we're making the poll number point is because you have a social consensus around it where people have, they've heard your argument. There have been many other, you know, political figures throughout time who've, who've made the case that you're making or tried to privatize it and tried to have these different reforms. So it's not like they haven't heard the argument. They just fully reject it because they've seen the way that this has tremendously alleviated senior poverty, um, even as, you know, in my opinion, it should go further so that we could get senior poverty all the way down to zero.
3: All uh- right. I appreciate everything you said. You've made two really, really fundamental uh, errors in your statement. One is that there's a consensus for continuing the program. You implied that it's among everybody. If you were to look at seventy-nine percent, for whom,
1: I mean, you're not going to get 100% consensus, but among young people, the consensus is probably even higher than the general population.
3: No, it's not. Many young people are recognizing that Not only are many young people worried that Social Security won't even be there, to your point, the data shows uh, that Social Security will limp along, even if it's only delivering 80% of the defined benefits on the books today. And there are changes that can be made to bring that up to 100. But notwithstanding all of that, many young people are worried that it won't be there for them. And many people are
1: Yeah, But that doesn't justify cutting it. And also, that could be fixed like, by... I'm not suggesting it
3: does. I'm trying to respond to your error about saying that everybody supports I didn't say everybody. I, I will the give you the exact
1: you're not get I will
0: give you the exact number. 79% oppose cutting social security benefits. 67% are against raising monthly premiums for Medicare. 58% support the idea of raising taxes on people making over $400,000 a year to pay for Medicare. 15% support raising the retirement age, 6% support reducing Social Security and Medicare benefits. I mean, as far as numbers go, this is as open and shut a case as you can get politically.
3: That's, that's just not true. Among young people Good response. who are the only group that we're talking about, for people who are above a certain age, I don't think anyone is proposing that, that we make any changes. But for young people, there is substantial concern that number one, the program won't be there, at least certainly won't be there for them in the way that it's structured today. And there's an increasing recognition that the rate of return that is promised to them, even if the system did work in exactly uh, the same way as it's structured today is a crappy rate of return compared to what they would get in the, in the private sector. So uh, we need to set that aside. Having said that, the idea that poverty has been reduced merely by social security is just not borne out by the facts. The amount of capital that has been acquired in our economy over time is uh, enormous compared to where we were, well, certainly hundred years ago, but even compared to where we were one generation ago, the amount of capital accumulated in the United States is enormous. This is of course uh, the way that the vast majority of retirement uh, is is financed is by the accumulation of capital, and of course, in this regard, the Social Security uh, scheme, the Social Security program, as it's structured today, is not one that builds capital. In some sense, it actually undermines the, the development and accumulation of capital, which is not the direction in which we want to go. If this had been a fully funded program from the beginning, we wouldn't be in this weird situation where we're having political uh, arguments about who should uh, resolve the the hole in the boat. And we'd be merely talking about whether these uh, accounts, which which don't exist today, right? People don't actually have uh, an asset account in the Social Security program. But what we should be discussing, if it had been structured correctly, is how these accounts should be managed. And unfortunately, uh, people don't have asset accounts that are in the Social Security program. And that's the fundamental problem going forward.
0: Yeah, I mean, we'll just agree to disagree on that. My concern about privatizing the program has been, you know, if you invest it in the marketplace, we see what happens with subprime mortgage crisis, Great Recession, COVID downturn, etc. I just feel like it's a lot safer to have a guaranteed return uh, as opposed to investing it in the marketplace. But that's fine. We could agree to disagree on that. Uh, I guess well, you're uh, right. I mean, a
3: guaranteed return is always, always safer. There's no question about that.
0: Um. So I did want to ask you about the minimum wage. You've actually surprised me a few times in the interview with takes that I thought you wouldn't have because most libertarians, for example, argue for like unlimited private money in politics, but you said, I I don't want to go in that direction, which surprised me. So kudos to you on that. But let me ask you about the minimum wage. What do you think the minimum wage should be?
3: I don't believe that we should have a minimum wage in the United States. I don't think it's appropriate for the government to tell people that they're not allowed to hire people at a particular wage rate. I think that in in, in a market economy, we ought to be uh, allowing people to engage in transactions voluntarily as a as an ethical matter as a as a practical matter uh, there is no reason to believe that in the long run the minimum wage has has done a lot of good in the labor market depending on how you define good and you and I might define good uh, differently. but the idea that we should be in the business, as uh, as a government of requiring certain people to get paid more, even though that's necessarily going to imply that certain people don't get hired. Uh, I think that that is uh, an ethical conundrum that is an inappropriate one resolved by the government.
0: So let me ask you this. How do you fix these problems, which I'm about to lay out for you? There was a 2021 study, the National Low Income Housing Coalition. They found, quote, there is no state county, or city in the country where a full-time minimum wage worker at $7.25 an hour working full-time can afford a two-bedroom rental. A full-time minimum wage worker can afford a one-bedroom rental in only 7% of all U.S. counties. How do you fix that problem?
3: Well, uh, first of all, I think we ought to have a problem with the way you asked the question. I think the real question that you want to ask is, how does how does that challenge get resolved, right? I I don't think you want to necessarily imply that the only way to resolve these challenges is for the government to 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 fix it, right? Yeah, I'm asking uh, you how how do
0: you fix the problem of low wages? That's my question to you.
3: Well, I think uh, let's let's address the question that you did ask, which is not a bad question. Uh, one of one of housing uh, in the United States, we seem to have continuously increase the amount of housing that we consume, uh, per capita for a variety of sociological reasons that argues that people are actually able to avail themselves of housing markets in a much more robust than way than, than ever before, which is a a counter argument to which, which runs counter to your characterization of the market. I actually Notwithstanding all of that, I share your concerns that housing has become uh, quite expensive, not just relative to the bottom of the wage scale, but relative to wages in general, and wa- uh, relative to GDP in this country. E- even more general, generally still, I, I think it's a, a actually a bigger problem than than merely what you put your finger on just now. And there are a number of answers. Uh, One is we need to change at a very fundamental way, how we view local uh, zoning ordinances, for example. Uh, California is the most stark example, but there are examples all over the United States that illustrate that when communities Decide to, in effect, ban multifamily housing from certain geographic areas. It drives up the cost uh, and, and significantly, and makes it difficult for individuals to access. Both in terms of how expensive it is, but also makes it difficult to access in terms of how far away it is from places of employment. So, so that needs uh, that needs to change. Our housing policy really stinks, uh, both in terms of finance. Uh, and in terms of uh, zoning. Why it is, as a sociological matter, that we continue to increase our consumption of housing is more complex, but I don't think it's one in which we should be injecting, uh, you know, government policy. I don't think we should be saying, uh, you know, people uh, should not be living in certain structures or uh, certain family structures or certain family units. I don't think that we should be encouraging people to either live together or to live separately. I think that those are things that we need to leave to families to decide for themselves. I, I, I suspect you would agree with that.
0: Well, uh, well, just putting aside housing for a second, We, I mean, we can get into that, but I'd rather put that aside because the question I'm more interested in is, you know, somebody who makes minimum wage would have to work 89 hours a week to afford a one-bedroom Uh, apartment. So that's a problem. How do we fix the problem of low wages? I don't think anybody should have to work full time and then not make enough money to survive and put a roof over their head.
3: Uh, I I agree that that is a real challenge. Uh, I'm not quite convinced uh, that it's a problem that requires uh, a government solution. I'm not sure what government solution that you would suggest uh, that we interject higher minimum wage, <laughs> let
0: me, Higher minimum let me, wage, for example, right. but a higher minimum here. wage would
3: necessarily well, mean uh, lower employment at the bottom. But end. I don't but think that's not actually, that's not true.
1: I have a, a want... recent study from 2023. Um, uh, economists studied 47 large U S counties where the minimum wage was lifted to $15 an hour versus counties that did not lift the minimum wage since 2009 um they found first it was successful at actually lifting wages which is the goal of the policy but it also found that the implications for employment of lifting minimum wage were actually positive in other words counties that enacted minimum wages actually saw more job growth not less so one of the founda- you know one of the things you're you're arguing that's kind of core to your argument here is that oh if you lift the minimum wage then you're denying some other people jobs that doesn't appear to be the case based on the research that has been conducted.
3: Right. It's very difficult. I, I know what you're going to say, but you're going to have to uh, understand how difficult economic research is, particularly when it's either across uh, different localities or when it's across different time periods. No, It. it you're, you're right. Uh, economic studies are not able to put their finger on what the changes are. No economist, e- even the people that authored that study, would assert that employment numbers were increased by the increase in the minimum wage. Nobody, but that's what nobody happened. would suggest that but that's well, what happened. No, well, it's what that's happened happening. over time, but no economist would suggest that it happened that's because not, that's we increased the minimum wage.
0: No, I get You're saying there's no causation correlation, and we're not saying there is. We're just saying empirically that's what happened. Now, if they had raised the minimum wage to like $100 an hour, then yeah, you would see mass unemployment because people can't afford that. When you're raising it from $7.25 an hour or $10 an hour to $15 an hour, the evidence bears out. That's exactly what happened. You had an increase in employment.
3: Well, you... you... I'm sorry, you, you say it as though it were causal. I think you need to I check I just said yourself. it's not causal. Right, but- the, But it's not so, it's right.
0: positive either. It's not like when you raise the minimum wage, you're guaranteed to have more unemployment. That empirically did right. not happen.
3: Right, And exactly. And what happened is that these localities raised it to uh, $15 an hour, which turned out to be uh, not a number that was very high in mm-hmm. terms of what employers were willing to uh, to pay. Now, in most of these cases, most people were already making more than $15 an hour, of course. Uh, The number of people that were not yet making $15 an hour, most of them uh, were immediately bumped up. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's my recollection that in most of the places where this happened, we're talking about relatively modest uh, adjustments, right? Uh, It's a big help. Not only were most people making $15 an hour already, but relatively few people were making less than that, and most of those were making $12, $13, and $14 an hour. So this is a relatively modest adjustment. You wouldn't necessarily expect to see a whole lot of secondary effects, and you wouldn't necessarily expect to see a lot of increases in income either. So I I, I just don't think that, you know, studies like this are helpful in the long run to answering this question. But let me, I mean, it seems let, to me it like the with you, that's empirical
1: why. <laughs> research is the best yeah. one. because look, I, I studied economics in college as well, and I know what the economic textbooks say. What the economic textbooks say and what actually happens in the real world are sometimes, not always, but sometimes quite different. I mean, I'll give you another one, right? If you open up an economic Well, I'm trying to, uh,
3: to agree with you that the yeah. research does not bear out the fact that there was a
1: significant the huge loss, loss. Let of, me, let me. Let me ask you. That's, let me ask exactly you kind right. of a a foundational like philosophical question that I'm just curious in your answer to. Do you think that you can be um fully free if you are a person who is living in poverty, who's working one of those $7.25 and can't afford housing and can't afford a family and can't afford healthcare? Like do you do you think that that meets your definition of freedom?
3: I don't think you can be fully free if we define freedom as being able to access everything you want, if you're living in poverty, in the same sense that I don't think that you can call yourself fully free if you define that as being able to, to do anything you want, but you're living in a world where you have some rules in place, right? Uh, If if that's our definition of, of freedom, Uh, I don't think that that's a a very useful. I don't think it's frankly a very workable definition of freedom. I think that that's injecting a word uh, for the sake of using that particular word. Look, uh, we all, and and I certainly hope that at least the three of us and all all of your listeners are on the same page in this regard. I find the persistence of intergenerational poverty in the United States to be absolutely disgusting and anathema to how we want our economy to work. Mm -hmm. Having been a police officer for 11 and a half years, I can tell you, if if you weren't an economist before becoming a cop, uh, being a cop will turn you into an economist because you see the effects of bad public policy up close and personal. You see the bad effects of of bad zoning, uh, bad housing policy, of bad schools. You see the effects of the war on drugs. You see the effects of what is in effect the world's most oppressive criminal justice system. You see how we crush whole communities, not just families, not just individuals. These things matter. Do we want uh, Americans uh, to continue to be lifted out of uh, poverty, Uh, hopefully at the same rate and even faster than than we saw during the 20th century? Of course we do. Uh, do, I don't think that anyone should say, well, uh, you don't agree with our objectives because you don't agree with our semantics or or the words that we choose to use. Um, There is a feeling of being crushed when You live in in poverty, whether that is uh, in a wealthy society like the United States, Mm -hmm. or whether it is in a relatively impoverished society like elsewhere around the world. Yeah. So you know that feeling matters. uh, Whether you attach to it, you know, an absence of you know what you call freedom, uh, or you attach any other lingo to it, it is something that we need to earnestly engage and fight. So, you know, I, I think that we all are looking for solutions to get people out of poverty. Uh, I have seen bad public policy make huge contributions to poverty in the United States, and that is what I believe that we need to eradicate. Similarly, I don't think that you can call yourself completely uh, free if you're operating in a system of too many rules and and regulations, but I- injecting the word, uh, freedom does not substantially change the nature of the argument. We want people to live their lives by their own standards and not be held back by artificial either rules or incentive structures that undermine their ability to earn a living.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I would uh, just to wrap up here on, on the rules and regulations front, uh, I guess the core disagreement, and that's fine. This happened. A lot of people disagree on this. In my opinion, the question is, what are the proper rules and regulations? Some make sense, some don't. There's a balance. We have to strike that balance. Some people will say if they're of a more libertarian persuasion, you know, the fewer, the better. Some who are more on the left would say, no, the more, the better. But um, just to wrap up the minimum wage conversation real quick. uh, Yeah, of course, we all oppose poverty. Uh, The minimum wage, if it kept up with inflation since 1968, it would already be $12 an hour today. The minimum wage would be $26 an hour if it kept up with productivity gains, and it would be sixty-one dollars and seventy-five cents if it rose at the same pace as uh Wall Street bonuses. <laughs> but just to just so I want to answer your question real quick and then we'll give you the last word. Uh, Mike, I I agree with you because if you drop me in the middle of Death Valley from a helicopter with no food, no water, no shelter, no anything, am I free? In many people's conception, they'd say, yeah. You know, go do whatever you got to do. I would argue in that scenario, you're free to die. So there needs to be some guardrails around it, which not only grants negative liberties, which I'm sure we all agree are a, are a good thing, but also grants some positive rights as well, which is probably the core of our disagreement. But having said all that, uh, please, Mike, tell everybody where they can find you and all that fun stuff. And I will give you the last word. You could say whatever you'd like.
3: <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I think that we've both done a good job of saying what it is that we like uh, up to this point. And I appreciate you taking the time to to chat with me.
0: Yeah, we enjoyed uh, it. I do
3: think that as much as we may disagree about certain ways of going about alleviating our problems, I would I would say that uh, you and I have focused a, a great deal on where we disagree. But the truth is that we agree on a lot. We agree on our objectives. Uh, we agree that people in the United States, we we do want them to live their lives by their own standards. Uh, you asked where people can find our campaign. We have a couple of different websites. You can go to MikeTremont.com. Uh, the, the greatest challenge there is you'd have to spell it right. Uh, Tremont <laughs> has two A's in it. Uh, or you can go to goldnewdeal.org. Uh, goldnewdeal.com is the wrong website. So you have to go to goldnewdeal.org. If you go to goldnewdeal.com, they're gonna try to sell you something, which is not necessarily a bad idea, but is is the wrong website. (laughs) We do believe that we need a fundamentally different relationship between us and our government. That our government does not operate in all too many cases, does not operate in our interests. I believe that that is fundamentally true in terms of foreign policy, but I believe it is practically true in many other elements of our economic management and uh, the protection and reservation of our individual liberties and rights uh, throughout our economy and the way that we need to, to live our lives. And I think that that's very, very important. So that is why I'm running for the Libertarian Party presidential nomination. On the other side of the nomination, I think we have a huge opportunity I think that the American people are ready to hear a message of not only change, but fundamental institutional level change to better align their government with their values. And in that sense, I would encourage everyone, uh, stop wasting your vote, vote for your principles, vote for your ethics, uh, vote for your values, and uh, have a look at the libertarian campaign that we're running.
0: Well, thank you so much for the spirited uh, discussion and debate. Uh, we really, we really enjoyed it. We appreciate it. Thanks,
1: Mike.
3: I appreciate it very much. You guys are terrific. You're good sports, and I really appreciate uh, the the way you, that you represent uh, your thoughts. I um, not only am I grateful that that you did so, but I want you to know I I really do appreciate it because I think that, um, well, I don't mean this to sound too schmaltzy. But it is obvious that your hearts are in the right place, and that <laughs> we agree so much on what our objectives are. And I'm I'm grateful for you guys for that.
1: Yeah, that comes across in your yeah. presentation as well, Mike.
0: Right back at you, and good luck with the uh, libertarian candidacy.
1: Yep, we'll be cheering you. for I you to win that, that. ticket.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, you take care. Take All care. Right. Bye bye. All right, so that was Mike Turmott running for the libertarian presidential nomination. Um, look, I mean. I remember the debates from however many years ago where they were like arguing about uh drivers licenses on yeah. on stage. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, Gary Johnson won the nomination and he was the most like normalish, you know, of well, all he had the libertarian been
1: candidates. Governor of New Mexico. Right. So but
0: he... he said I believe in driver's licenses and everybody else was like, "Boom!" Boo.
1: <laughs>
0: and you know, he had some, mo- he's like, I don't believe in no government. I'm not an anarchist. Right. That tells me he's a little bit more on the moderate side of the libertarian
1: spectrum. Yeah. Yes. I think so. But, but I don't
0: know if that fares well in today's day and age, to be honest. They might want the person who says, you know, there should be no age of consent.
1: Well, and, which of, I'm
0: sure he thinks there should be an age of consent. <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: I mean, definitely when you're dealing with a relatively small third party effort, you're going to be talking to the sort of hardest core activists within that right right so you know i think that's that is probably the nature of the beast but you know he's a perfect guy to engage with back and forth because he's really you know he's very hardened in his views clearly has a worldview clearly really thought it through not afraid to mix it up and doesn't take any of it personally so
0: well yeah and that's crucial yes the worst is if you're debating somebody or whatever, and then they get all in their feelings.
1: I just feel like with libertarians, I actually really understand the appeal of the philosophy because it's very elegant in a way, It's like a very elegant theoretical philosophy, but it just doesn't actually work out in the real world. The well, way
0: I mean, look, the breakdown <laughs> I as, you, it would, you know? as you laid out the breakdown between that perspective and our perspective is that you can't have a critique of tyranny pointed at the government, which we all get. That makes sense. Right. But then you can't give corporations a pass, especially in a system where corporations are pretty much the boss. Yeah. Right? We live in like a corporate oligarchy and it's the pol- the corporations who buy the politicians and rig the laws in their favor. And like where any person in the U.S. is going to spend the majority of their waking hours is at work. Right. And when you're at work, who has the most control over you? It's your boss. So that that corporate structure can be tyrannical as well, right? I'm not saying it is definitionally tyrannical. I'm sure there's instances of whatever. Somebody works at a small business or it's family-owned or they like their boss and it's more uh, cooperative and collaborative. Like, I'm I'm not saying it's definitionally uh, tyrannical, but certainly many people basically live in a tyrannical structure where they spend most of their waking hours where they just have to take orders. Yeah. And, like, that's where it breaks down because, they, you know, they would argue... Well, no, you voluntarily agreed to do that, so there's nothing about this that's coercive. Uh, This is you as a free adult deciding you're going to sell your labor on the marketplace.
1: No, one thing that he mentioned that we didn't get more into is he was basically like, his argument was it wasn't the government that improved safety in the workforce. It was unions. It was the rise of unions. And so it seems like, and I think there's kind of a divide here too, but it seemed like he's a libertarian in favor of like, hey, if we have a more widespread union movement, they'll basically, you'll have a more natural push and pull between the workers and the corporations etc but i think you still need a government body to enforce that those protections are being enacted to be fair to
0: him and i sh- one of us should have followed up and said wait are yeah. you pro-union but if that is his position that he's a libertarian and he's pro-union yeah he's like one of the only ones left because that mean, is he, not that is like most libertarians these days you know that hate was unions. what he
1: yeah because they see it as yeah like, he did
0: hint at that but i didn't yeah. follow there were so many things i wanted to get to and so i didn't want to Start a whole thing on unions. Unions, I know. Yeah, I felt
1: I had the same. I had the same feeling. I
0: thought the same thing you did. I was like, wait, is he saying he's pro union? Like, I get, he's saying that instead of, like, government regulations, but it's like, actually, no, both are kind right. of Right,
1: but there, I mean, that is, like, kind of the libertarian case for unions, and you can make But the there aren't many
0: who to, like, what, 1% of libertarians who argue that? I have no idea. It's like nothing,
1: they're, like, they're all I pulled, anti-union. I haven't polled libertarians recently on the topic, but, you know, I mean, if you look at some of the Scandinavian countries, they don't have minimum wage, but because they have such a robust union movement, their wages are Yeah, they don't
0: wage. need the minimum wage. They don't need the yeah, minimum wage, right. and so,
1: like, that's actually a deal I'd be totally willing. I would much rather have a widespread union movement. Um, I think that would you know bolster workers in a more whole holistic way than just the minimum wage, but in you know be better yeah, to have both for,
0: for workers. <laughs> the union thing is good, but like unions aren't they? They can't navigate like a top level financial regulation. Of course. and so that's yeah. why you need the government too. You yes, know I mean? of yeah. course,
1: yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think you know that's where for me it always kind of falls apart. Is I just like it's sort of. um. It's kind of I don't want to be patronizing here, but it's sort of adorable to imagine that, like, if an industry board got together, they would totally regulate themselves. And they would totally oh. hold everybody accountable. I'm like, where, when does that ever happen? We have so many examples of everything going in the opposite direction as that it's amazing to me that you can hold on to that notion that that in a perfect world is what would happen. I mean, it
0: reminds me of the um, very famous Dave Rubin, uh, Joe Rogan debate where Dave Rubin was like, I like the idea of them like regulating themselves. And she was like, dude, I used to work in construction. That absolutely does not happen. They try to cut corners wherever freaking possible. And you might not even see the impact of it until seven years down the road when your home collapses on your freaking head or there's a fire because the electrical lines weren't weren't put in properly or they were too close to water lines or whatever.
1: Right, and it's way too late to even get to the bottom of who did that and who's responsible or whatever. So yeah, anyway. Some parts of but, government are good, bottom line.
0: Yeah, of course. It, like anything, it's everything is nuanced. Everything is mixed. Um, but, you know, the reason why I have some libertarian listeners is because they like it when I talk about civil liberties or war or the drug war. Like, there's a number of issues where it's like, yeah, I get it. Because I would always, I, my line has always been on social issues. I'm for as much freedom as possible. I wouldn't say, like, maximum freedom, because I think there's some regulations that make sense that I don't think are authoritarian. Yeah, they're right?
1: balanced, yeah.
0: But um, I lean heavily on the side of, freedom on social issues. But then I would argue on economic issues, I mean, I would call it I'm pro freedom, but part and parcel with that freedom is state intervention and regulation and and making it so that you have a redistribution of wealth that is fair and just and reasonable because if you leave it just up to the marketplace, oh my god, we have a mess of a system. I mean, I was doing I was uh reading earlier about this. We have um what's the number here? I need to pull it up. Did I miss it? Oh, here it is. Um Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Jeff Bezos collectively hold more wealth, three people, than the bottom 50% of the U.S. population. So three people have more wealth than 160 million people combined or 63 million American households. Three people. Now, again, <coughs> our contention is they didn't just work harder. Right. They're not just better that much better than everybody else. Bill Gates wakes up in the morning and takes a shit, needs some fucking waffles, and like goes to see one of his shitty kids if he has any kids, I don't even know if he does. Like he's just living a normal ass life. And, you know, the the it, it's a mix of luck and skill and shamelessness. It's like all these things come well, together.
1: With him it's also a mix of like patent abuse. That's and what I'm saying, patent shamelessness, right? Yeah. Like I don't care who
0: I have to step on. All those things come together and that's where you get like it's not like he's just better than everybody. It's not this isn't a meritocracy. Yeah. This is we don't live in a meritocracy. Yeah, you have to redress these grievances. You have to redistribute the wealth. And I am a proud advocate of redistribution of wealth. It just needs to be the good kind of redistribution, not the kind that happened, which was basically the rich waging war on the bottom 90% and stealing $50 trillion from them, which is what happened from 1974 until today.
1: Also on the fetishization of, um, like, devolving power from the federal governments to the state governments, which he mentioned a couple times, but we didn't have a chance to get into, like... There's no guarantees the state government is not going to be authoritarian as hell. I think we're seeing that a lot right now with, like, the anti-trans legislation, the book banning legislation, the anti-protest legislation. Anti-abortion. Yeah, all of those things. So I'm, I'm not sure why. You know, there's there's no substitute for having good governance, anti-corruption, money out of politics, and, you know, having a, some sort of societal representation of what our values are. And it can't be just left to— profit motives because obviously as I as I tried to make the point we have a lot of other goals as a people and as a society than just maximizing profit for capital
0: absolutely but that was a fun debate it was very spirited it was very interesting and entertaining I know I don't know if you've seen but there are people really love the fact that we're debating folks now oh nice uh, whether it was Emily or... I
1: don't see anything.
0: Okay. Well, I've heard through the grapevine. That Emily had a day. fun time
1: with us. She really liked well, it. Good. Yeah. I
0: mean, so we, uh, we'll keep doing a lot of these because people like to see it. They like to see it mix it up. They like to see it get a little contentious. And so... When you ask, we deliver. That's right. Yeah. So, guys, uh, if you're not already going over to Substack, pay $5 a month to get the video of every interview, and in this case, debate, and you get it a day early. You also get our newsletters and all that fun stuff. And everybody else, if you don't want to do that, you can sign up for free over at Substack and get the audio version of the podcast a day later, usually on Saturdays. Remember, we don't take any uh, corporate money, any advertiser money for this podcast, so it's all funded through small-dollar donations. So please consider uh, helping us out. And we love you guys, and we'll talk to you soon.